You are listening Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring conversations with influential people in Ukraine and important scholars and authors of Slavic studies. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, for the Pacifica Network. Our guest is Tetyana Denforth, a Ukrainian-American author of The Child of Ukraine, Amazon's number one bestseller in historical Russian fiction. She is a translator for PBS, Frontline News, and has written and edited articles featured in The Telegraph and The New York Times. She grew up with her Ukrainian heritage at the forefront of her childhood, which led to her fascination with storytelling in her culture. Tatiana Denforth's next historical novel about Ukraine will be out in 2023. Tatiana grew up in a small town in upstate New York and lives there with her husband and three children. Tatiana describes her early childhood in the Bronx in an insular Ukrainian family. I was born in New York City to Ukrainian immigrant parents, and I lived with them in the Bronx. I did not speak English until I was about eight. Ukrainian is still my first language. My maternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother were living upstate in New York, and my grandfather had a massive brain hemorrhage, and he just suddenly died. So she was up there kind of by herself. So my parents just thought it would be a good idea for me to spend some time with my grandmother as she was kind of alone. I was seven or eight. So she basically raised me while my parents lived and worked in the cities. I'm amazed that you were born in New York, but you didn't learn English until you were eight. You know, my parents made a very concerted effort to only speak Ukrainian to me. If I responded in English, they would kind of chastise me a little bit and like say, no, it's Ukrainian. So it was very much, I am Ukrainian, even though we live in America. We kept up the traditions. (laughs) They were trying to enroll me in schools for kindergarten in the city. And so many schools back then were like, oh, God, she doesn't speak English. She's going to have learning difficulties. You know, it was a very American response. And my parents were like, oh, are you kidding me? Um, but then eventually they had enrolled me in a totally French speaking school. And they were the ones that were like, no, this is brilliant. Let's take her in because she's going to learn French and English really well because she already has another language in her brain. So anyway, then I moved upstate. <laughs> I learned English when I registered at school and it was quite funny. I had a very thick accent. Where did your parents come from? What part of Ukraine? My father came from a town called Rohatin, and that is in Zakarpatia Oblast, on the western side of Ukraine, outside Lviv. Mm -hmm. And my mother, she was actually born in a labor camp during the war. It's called Neumarket. It's probably about three hours southeast of Nuremberg. And then after the war, 
she and her parents lived in various immigrant displacement camps, first in Austria, then in Italy. And then they left to go to Australia because there was an immigrant relocation program that Australia had offered post-war countries. And they basically gave my grandfather lots of land to work. And he was a cane cutter. And they promised these people that after three years of working the land, they would be granted Australian citizenship. And did that happen? No, that did not actually, which is in the book. And I don't want to release any spoilers, but my grandmother went through something pretty horrific and they had to leave Australia and emigrate to New York. Is the journey you describe of the sisters in the child of Ukraine, is that reflective of what actually happened? Oh, yeah, that part was definitely real. They traveled for ages. These people traveled by cattle cart. It's insane. They just ate and drank whatever they could find on the way. They were escaping Stalin, correct? Well, they were escaping Stalin's secret police. It was called the NKVD, which eventually morphed into the KGB. And at that time, they rounded up as it's happening in parallel now in Ukraine, they're rounding up anybody who might have any affiliation with any military politics, anybody who kind of aided and abetted anybody who was involved in politics, anybody who's related to anybody in politics. So they were rounding up people, shooting them. They were, you know, dumping them into trucks and, and sending them off to prison to die there. There were pogroms at the time as well. Um, so yeah, so they were escaping the secret police. But these were not Jews, correct? Your family isn't Jewish. At that point, all religion was banned for Ukrainians under Soviet rule. I mean, they did what they could. They had masses at night. This sounds like part of my family story. I love that this book has resonated with people. My family story is Jewish, but um, these weren't Jewish people. And I'm saying that simply to illustrate that it is a universal book. And now, you know, what's interesting is that Ukrainians have a Jewish president. It's phenomenal for people to finally go, wait a minute, there's so many parallels here. And I think it's important because it creates more of a way for the world to lean in and understand, especially now with with something that feels so far away, you know, the war in Ukraine, a lot of people, it's, it's, it's easy for them to turn away and say like, well, it's so far away. I don't feel connected to it. I don't know what I can do. But I've always said that the, the first quality of being an ally is educating yourself. And education is reading. When you read a story from a country that is in the headlines, and it's a really human story, you can really connect to it, I think, on a, on a deeper level. The story isn't like heavy into politics. Yes, it's historical fiction, but I don't want it to be inaccessible. I want people that even people who don't read historical fiction regularly, I wanted them to love it too. How is your book doing? Oh my God, it's it's so great. People are really connecting to it. I get messages from all over the world from people I don't know saying how They cried at certain chapters and they couldn't put the book down. They've given their copy to a friend. And my publisher is Digital First, which means that more people can get access to my work. I'm not doing it to be long listed and win awards. I'm writing because I want as many people as possible to read the stories that I hopefully write well. (laughs) 
but since the war, I have gotten targeted. I have gotten trolls hacking my social media accounts. I've been doxxed on Twitter, which means that they revealed my home address. That's incredible. I'm horrible. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, my Instagram account has been permanently disabled because I have hate followers and trolls lurking and they just report anything they can even i'm not aggressive on there but they just report everything they can and if you gather up and they if instagram gets complaints from enough people then they permanently ban your account and they delete it because they think that you're breaking guidelines it's been happening regularly since march ukrainian creators activists journalists artists they are all being targeted by these bots being kind of shadow banned and blocked it's really frustrating when we are just trying to share Ukrainian culture and history and uh, these young armchair communists love saying things like Putin is going to put your cousins in a blender, all of that. They keep reinventing their usernames probably and their avatars. And when I would report them, they made it a personal vendetta. You are listening to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our guest, Tatyana Denforth, is the author of The Child of Ukraine, Amazon's number one bestseller in Russian historical fiction. I'm your host, Anne Levine, from WOMR Community Radio in Provincetown, Massachusetts, or Pacifica Network. Thank you for joining us. Tatiana Denford, what was your 242 like? What happened to you on February 24th? Oh, I remember that I was in bed with my husband and I had the news on. And then I just went, hang on a minute. There's no way. There's no way. There's been threat for so many years, and since 2014, we've been maybe on tenterhooks a little bit, Ukrainians have been, but I just didn't think it would be real, and then suddenly it was unfolding, and I remember I felt really emotional, but it didn't hit me until probably a week later. But I remember the conversation that I had with my husband at the time that it happened. We were obviously horrified, and I remember my husband turning to me and saying, you know, you are going to be one of the voices that people are going to need to hear from, to learn from. And at first I was like, maybe that's a bit cynical thinking that when this is happening and Ukraine is center stage for a really terrible reason. But at the same time, he was right. I had to kind of prepare myself as if I was going to battle. Ukraine is my first language. I'm kind of a link. I'm not in Ukraine, and I can be one of the people in America who is amplifying all of these amazing Ukrainian voices. And there were so many voices that eventually came out. There's hundreds of Ukrainians flooding the channels on social media, whether they're activists, journalists, creators, uh, singers, whatever they are, they're all picking a lane and doing their best to educate people in the thing that they know best as a Ukrainian. And I wanted to be one of these people. He was right. And not for the attention, but for the education. Do you still have family in Ukraine? Yes, I do. I have cousins. They're scared and they were sheltering recently because of the bombings in Kiev. They didn't have any, nothing, no hot water, no electricity, no power, nothing. Luckily, nothing has been hit around where they are. Luckily, Ukraine is so determined to just fix something when it's broken that got it all back the next day. 
Although now I'm going to be nervous that something bad's going to happen. But <laughs> I have a friend. Uh, she's 29, I believe. She said to me that she's now seriously thinking about moving back because I think my generation and younger just feels maybe more of a connection to this kind of revolution, this movement, this moment uh, where Ukraine is finally saying enough is enough. My parents think very differently now that they've lived in America since the 50s. And I understand that because they tried to visit family in the Ukraine, but it was the Soviet Union in the 70s. They went back, they got arrested, they got separated, their names were on a list. They feared for their lives and they would never want to go back. And I think it's really easy for them now. They're in their 70s. They see the news. It's, you know, they just, they would rather change the channel. For me, I'm obsessed with and making sure that I know what's going on. I check in with my activist friends who are in Ukraine. I check in with Ukrainian friends who are in the UK, who have family over there. What contributed to the response Ukraine has had? Why do you think they've been so successful in mounting the defense and even, in some cases, offense this is a much bigger invasion than we saw in 2014. This is a countrywide assault. And luckily, Zelensky is in power. I think any other politician personally would not have managed it as well as he is and will because he's young. He knows how to engage an audience. He knows how to be compelling on social media. His answers are consistent. He always presents a consistent image. And I think that alongside Ukraine really digging for clever ways to fight back now, not just with equipment, but, you know, people are just out on the streets everywhere in all of these occupied territories. Like there is this fearlessness now everybody around the country in Ukraine is showing their true colors. Whereas in 2014, even though the sentiment was the same saying, you know, leave us alone, it was concentrated more. Whereas here there are air raid sirens in every single area of Ukraine some days. Do you think that if Poroshenko was still in power, that Ukraine would have been able to do what they have I think Poroshenko probably, he was okay. I think a lot of people, when Zelensky was running, were just thinking it was a joke that this comedian was going to run for president. And yet now he is presenting this united front that most Ukrainians are presenting as well. It's like he is leading by example. And I think had Poroshenko been in power, I think the outcome would have been really different. What outcome that would be, I don't know. But... I trust that the universe gave us Zelensky for a very specific reason. And that's because he's basically saying it's okay to stand up and, and call out the bullies. Do you have a sense this phase of the war will come to a conclusion? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, winter is coming. That makes me nervous. It might be more devastating for us. There are going to be people without heat and power and homes to shelter in. And I think that, uh, I think we have pleaded more than enough times for extra help and the United States is helping and it's incredible. And I think that's kind of really keeping us going. I think the international community, a lot of countries are leaning in saying, how can we help? You know, it's tricky. You don't want to risk starting a global war. Uh, so 
I think the emotional side of me hopes and feels that it's going to be over soon. But the realistic side, I worry that it's going to take, I mean, rebuilding is surely going to take years and years. But the war, I don't know, it, it might take another year. I don't even know how to feel saying that out loud. I feel like it's bad luck to even say that. It's hard to conceive of it, but I'd like to know what you think about the possibility that if Putin remains in power, or if someone even more nefarious comes after him, that this might continue. That barring Russia being occupied, this could happen again in a few years. I think there are certain checks and balances that need to, and systems that need to be put into place. And I'm sure they're being put into place already by President Zelensky and Elena Zelenska. Um, I think he has a really good team of people around him that will prevent all of that from happening. And I do think the leaders of countries are going to be monitored much more closely as to who they align themselves with. I think as of today, Russia was declared a terrorist state. I just saw it on Twitter. Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe has recognized Russia as a terrorist state. According to Ukrainian reps, the resolution recognizes Russia's participation in the UN Security Council as illegal. So I honestly think that wars and all of these kind of atrocities, unfortunately, will happen around the world in various different cultures, sadly, because people in power get easily corrupted. But I do think in this particular narrative, I don't think it's going to repeat itself because there's way too much attention now on bad behavior, sanctions, you know, people align themselves with people who are just money hungry, uh, leaders who are bullies, leaders who say one thing and do another. So I do think things will change. I think this is definitely, in my opinion anyway, I think it's a watershed moment. I know that you're not a politician, and uh, but in some ways, maybe that makes your responses more authentic. Maybe. I think they would hate me as a politician. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think about what Macron has said? Here's the thing. He doesn't want a world war. I get it. Nobody does. Like, I completely respect where he's coming from. But you cannot, as a world leader with a huge platform say, well, if Russia uses nuclear weapons against Ukraine, we're not going to use them back. The way he worded his statement today, it's almost like giving Russia a blank check to use nuclear weapons. I think instead, somebody in his team should have said, listen, listen, before you say that, let's just tweak it a bit and say, listen, none of us want a world war. None of us want Russia to use nuclear weapons. We don't even want to use them. Something along those lines. I think it's just a really badly worded statement. And you know what Twitter's like. As soon as people get a hold of that, it just goes everywhere. And it just sends the wrong message, in my opinion. I think politician is the worst job to have ever. You can never get it right. So I do not envy people in positions of power like that. But I thought to myself, all... I want from a president is to be able to stand and speak to his people like human beings. And I want them to not, you know, always have shiny smile and everything's going to be great. When actually all of us really just need somebody to go, you know what? Yes, we get it. This is really frightening what's happening 
right now with the war. The world feels like it's really angry. I get it. But we're going to lean in together. We're going to work together on this because I wouldn't be here without you guys. I wouldn't be in this position, which means we kind of have to help each other out here. That's all we want to hear. That's what I think I would say as a politician anyway. You know, and the person who is really doing that, which is really refreshing, and I think the world is seeing that, is Zelensky. I mean, he's in a very precarious position, yes, but everything he says is really human. He brings a realness that a lot of people are seeing, and it's not an act. And all of his interviews, he just answers really honestly. It's like the BBC saying, if something were to happen and Putin died, um, how would you feel? And he literally just shrugged and said, I don't care. It's a very honest answer. He didn't say, I wish him death. I think he said in Ukraine, it's not one or the other translated, which is like, I don't have an opinion. I have more important things to focus on right now. It's great. What do you think about the job that President Biden has been doing? I think he is maintaining a consistent energy, which is important. He's not flying off the handle. He's not threatening people. He is trying to handle it as calmly and as evenly as possible. And I think that's a great quality in a president. You know, I may not agree with some of his policies or I may not agree with how he approaches things, but he never is erratic. He's not argumentative to not escalate the situation, which is all we can ask for right now. Under the circumstances, would you like to see the U.S. or some other country send troops? I would hate for a country to send people into a war in general. I'm a pacifist. I think wars are awful. I think when people say they're a necessary evil, I disagree with that. I, I think this is a shame that countries have to get to this point. So as much as we would like help, I, I would feel sad if America pushed their people to go into this war, I think the most important thing is that the message has been, as Zelensky's been saying, we need ammunition. And a lot of people have been donating to the armed forces. I think that help is probably more beneficial than just sending bodies to potentially die. You're in such an interesting position as a Ukrainian-American that I can hear the conflict in you. Mm. Uh, I can actually hear it in a person. Yeah. It's very interesting to get your point of view on this. I've actually, I'm doing production on a podcast called Ukrainian Spaces. Is Ukrainian Spaces already out there? Yep. We're on our second season. I joined Maxim recently. So the two people who founded it are called Maxim Aristavi. And the other person is Valeria Voschevska. They started on Twitter as soon as the war started. And they did live sessions once a week or twice a week, whereby they offered a safe space for a lot of Ukrainians to come and talk about how they're feeling and what they're doing. And then it evolved into a podcast and a newsletter that goes out to their supporters and they have a Patreon page. So people who sign up for the Patreon get one-on-one -on -one access with us and they get to ask questions of the guests. And we have had so many people as guest speakers. And I ended up doing production for them and promotion. And it's really interesting because this season we're doing bridge episodes. And it's basically finding the parallels between Ukraine and dealing with Russian colonialism in their history, finding the parallels between that and places like South Sudan 
and Taiwan and all of these places who have also historically been oppressed and colonized by Russia. And they're absolutely phenomenal. I always call them the, the future Ukrainians because they are just so active and passionate in their activism. You know, they're just really bold and I love it. Well, Tatiana, we have covered so much. And <laughs> oh, no, it's been lovely. It's been lovely chatting. And it's all your questions were so great. They were very unique and not like any other interview I've done. Well, thank you so much. And the best to you, your family here and in Ukraine. Oh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate that. And to you as well. Thank you. Thanks to Tatiana Denforth. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. Music, Ridna Matimoya. Performed by the Polish guitarist, Aleksander Vilgos. To see pictures of our guests and for more information, go to ukraine242.com. This is Anne Levine. Until next week on Ukraine 242.
Thank you.